right. Faithful listeners, welcome to the fourth makeshift podcast, also known as the Shedcast. Today I have with me David Kitchen, the CEO and co-founder of Microcosm. David, thank you so much for joining us today. That's okay. And just want to give the readers a little bit about yourself, but first let's just give them what is Microcosm? Microcosm. So, you know, community forums, you go online and you look at these community forums like VBulletin and they've been around forever and they're super resilient, but they don't work on your mobile. They look like how they're a really clunky, weird experience. Microcosm is just fixing that, making group community stuff work. Okay, awesome. So I remember like going back, you know, 10 years, we used to just love forums. They were kind of a primary form of communication when the internet first started and they just haven't changed since. Yeah, exactly. Why do you think that no one's attempted to do this before? I think they have. I just don't think that the weird thing about community forums, they're the most resilient thing on the internet. They're one of the first things on the internet. So Usenet is the precursor. And then there was the, the bulletin board in terms of the Perl written scripts in the early 90s. And then the PHP ones. And they're all kind of good enough for the function of just letting people talk. But they're all kind of stifled in their own weird way. But as long as they functioned, no one was going to take on the task of doing this enormous amount of work to rip them apart. Because it was just like, well, how do you fix something that kind of works? And as long as they were working well enough, if you go on to there's a great um, one, I think it's called Candle Power, which was a, a, a flashlight torch community. And it's what, like enormous... people that liked flashlights or? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and yeah, they'll discuss uh, which LEDs are awesome and which batteries are given them the brightest output. And it's an enormous, enormous community. It's just a bunch of dads in the suburbs, basically. No, young people. It's super cool to do everyday carry now. And, and they've got all together and you see them all conversing and you realize that as long as it functions for them, they're not going to get up and say, but it doesn't work on my mobile. Let's rewrite the whole thing. Right. Okay. So how long have you been building Microcosm? Just over a year now. So. And who's your co-founder? Uh, Matt. Matt's Cottingham, who's super smart, techie guy. Excellent. I guess we met a little while back when you came to an event at Makeshift, but we really bonded when we went and biked from Paris to London with, you know, 70 other people. And I found out that you run one of the largest communities for bikers in London, if not the world. London fixed gear and single speed community, which is LG... LFGSS. LFGSS. Can you just tell us, like, why you started that? How long it's been going for? Yeah, I started it in i think it was 2007 so it was march 20th 2007 and i'd just come out of a nine-week marriage and i just thought you know what i want to get drunk ride a bike and i knew no one with whom i could get drunk and ride a bike so i just thought <laughs> i'll start a website and now it has 38,000 members 14,000 members were active just this month which is I mean, any tech company in London would love to have those kind of figures. What do you think uh, contributed to its explosive growth? It was a fixed gear scene, so it became fashionable, but it became fashionable. I, I thought it was dead when we started it. And actually, it was, I'd seen it in Chicago, and I thought this was a dying fashion. I pretty much thought, well, this thing is over from a fashion sense, but it will be a cool thing to bond people together. And if you look around London seven years ago, pre the cycling boom, the cyclists split themselves into commuters who did nothing else, and they really didn't, it wasn't a lifestyle thing, they just commuted, or they split themselves into racers, and there was no, nothing in between. You know, you were one or the other. And it was kind of the first thing to catch the mood of. So there was no enjoying biking. Yeah, there's nothing. <laughs> there's no one saying, wouldn't it just be fun to get our bikes out of the shed and get on them and ride? Yeah. And it was kind of the first sort of place in and around London where I said, you know what, that's pretty cool. Let's just do that. You know, let's just have fun. And I think that just caught a, a mood which 
has helped make it really really grow and so you put the community online as well as having all of these like in real life event meetups as well which came first the online or getting people together the online the online online came first Uh, i set up the website and i went on to about four or five other websites which had cyclists on and i said look this is what i'm doing and come and say hello make yourself known let's just find each other first and once we solved the hey yeah there are other people who want to get drunk and ride bikes this is probably not a good promotional message is it get drunk (laughs) and ride bikes wear a helmet (laughs) yeah wear a helmet and don't jump lights yeah once people were actually in the same place then it became easy to turn around and go well you know what it's after work it's stressful who wants to just go for a ride and then you can do a lap of london and see the lights which at this time of year is actually gorgeous um yeah it's kind of special when you actually get out and do something with people when's the next ride there are rides all the time there's probably i don't know four or five big rides a month the best ones my favorite ones the bridges this happens once or twice a year starts at one side of london goes to the other always opposing directions so east west one time west east the other time it crosses every single bridge in london and it's a night ride so it starts like 10 11 at night people bring beer and whiskey to keep themselves warm and we start at say tower bridge and cycle to key bridge it takes hours yeah how many hours are we talking three to four it shouldn't take this time but the group can be three or four hundred whoa that's crazy (laughs) that sounds like so much fun though but is it annoying to be biking with 400 people across a bridge at one in the morning you have the best conversations you've got the road to yourself there's so many cyclists you block off everything you have the road to yourself and the freedom in that the the joy in it is great fun okay excellent and when do you plan on taking this community and putting them on a microcosm site because they're not yet they're built on something else no today what we're using is a v bulletin and v bulletin is the most popular commercial software for running community forums and there are I think there are in the region of hundreds of thousands of sites that run on vBulletin. And most people run on an old version of vBulletin because vBulletin was acquired by a US company in Silicon Valley, a private equity firm. They use it to get revenue out of car sites in the US primarily. And the software kind of stagnated. It's not particularly good for a lot of things nowadays. It's not very adaptable. And for a long while, we, we thought maybe we can just hack the existing software and make it better and when it became apparent that's not a good idea and it doesn't work and there were fundamental architectural things that stopped us from doing it we're kind of like right we're right brand new software and what we've done is we've taken an approach where we've launched an initial version of the software we've got i think it's 11 sites on it at the moment those we focused on the engagement stuff just getting people talking really really easily because if that's working it's going to work and then we focused on features that will give us feature parity with what people expect from vbulletin so we have this path that when we move sites over we're not going to lose anything we're not going to you know we can import their sites and including our own and we're not going to lose lots of data so you're going to make it easy for people like exporting a wordpress blog and yeah we're going to make it super easy just do everything so what's going to happen is in january we're launching the version which is feature parity with the big products congrats Um, yeah (laughs) congrats when it works (laughs) fingers crossed and hopefully by late february early march we'll have the import export tool run um and what we're going to do there is write something that can export any form vbulletin vanilla uh, phpbb all of these popular packages and we will it will export to a single consistent sort of schema sort of um, sort of data structure and then we'll write this import tool and we'll get those forums on board so LFGSS and another few other cycling communities 
uh, which represent about 50, 60,000 users. Those should join us in March. Excellent. And do you plan on rolling out Microcosm to other communities around the world? Yeah, all of them. All of them. Okay, <laughs> great. We've talked a little bit about how much it stinks to be a tech entrepreneur just in the sense that you have to really like, you know, focus your budgets and you're really good at that. And you've told me before, like, you know, you, you pay a very minimum amount for rent and you live very simply. And when you need things, the community that you've built helps you out. Yep. Which I thought was just amazing, you know? I mean, that's that's kind of one of those unforeseen benefits of building a community that not everyone is able to tap into. So people are obviously really grateful for what you've done. And just want you to share a few of those anecdotes, like whether it's a bike or a laptop or whatever, the community's kind of come There's to bat so for. There's so much. The first thing you've got to realize is if you give people a space to talk about the thing they love, like really, really love, then you transform their lives. There's lots is going to happen. They're going to meet other people who share that love. They're going to meet partners. They're going to get married. They're going to settle down. They're going to move town. They're going to go somewhere strange, and they're going to have someone's floor to crash on because they share this interest. Right. And when you transform someone's life and you are enabling this sort of this space for them to live in, which they've got so much happiness, and they sort of hear that you need anything, they look after their their own interest to some extent by looking after you. And this is can be super simple like when i first quit my job and i had no money sort of ready to do the startup i just kind of quit and had nothing and i just thought this is what i want to do and that's scary but i remember the first uh, time i i wasn't paying myself anything and i got to the end of the month and i was like damn no washing powder i remember just saying on, on one of the forums how i couldn't afford much beyond literally the pasta <laughs> the pizza and things like that and one guy was just like, well, I work for uh, Neil Giard, have some fine cheese. Someone else was just like, well, I'll just sort out your washing powder, <laughs> which turns out is actually quite expensive. And someone else sorted me out with fine coffee from Monmouth. And, and it just started adding up and there's little things and they're never going to take care of your rent. But at the same time, they can take care of the little luxuries that make it feel like you've got a good lifestyle even when you've got no money. And those things kind of matter. I mean, most tech founders if they don't start with a lot of money, are going to live so frugally, it's unbelievable. And we were, our burn rate for our company was, for a long while, it was under 1,500 quid for two to three members of staff. For a month? Uh, per month. Wow. Which is ridiculous. You know, the rent, the equipment, everything. And people are just like, well, how? And it's just like, well, don't spend. And yet you've still got to have some quality of life. And it's the quality of life that's being supplied to us by the community. This sense that actually it's okay someone's going to look after your back buy you a beer so it's amazing now we're coming up on like a just really community time of the season and i think it's so interesting what you guys are doing for christmas and what you kind of have thought about community in the sense of you you build your own really talk a little bit about like you know how you learned to build your own community and why you needed that right we're going to touch on the homelessness <laughs> <laughs> well we can go back to that so there's there's one really interesting part of david that i learned really early on you were quite upfront about and that's 20 years ago so looking back quite a long time you were a bit of a rap scallion as a kid and ended up homeless yeah so there is a backstory to that and it's backstory that I'm not afraid to tell because actually I think that if I hide this information, it's going to be obvious that there are certain things that are different and then it can be kind of used against me. It's a weakness. But if I say it, then it can kind of be a strength and I'm a little bit immune to some of the ways that I can be judged as a result of it. But yeah, so I grew up in a council state. There was It was not much sort of wealth and my parents were divorced broken out it's the same story that's gone on you know millions of times played out around the world but it got to the point when i was sort of 17 18 where i kind of looked around and i went aha my life has been planned out for me someone's dealt me my hand and it's not the hand i want 
And what I did is I, I chose to change my hand. I chose to throw it in. So I made myself homeless. And that's, you know, there are degrees of homeless. And there's homeless crashing on a sofa. And there's homeless sleeping on a street. And it was the latter. So I was sort of sleeping under bushes in St. James's Park and sort of hitchhiking around the country because it's warmer in someone else's car than it is outside. And in the summer, that's enjoyable. And in the winter, it's hard. So, so when you're homeless, you count winters because they're the hard bits. So, How many winters were you homeless for? Two. So. Okay. And yeah, it was two and a half years on the street and two, two winters. There are things you can do to keep warm. Um, not all of them are legal. I, I used to sleep on building sites in the sort of workers' cabins. They were never locked, so you always had a place where snow was not going to get you. So as long as you got out in the morning before the workforce turned up, you were cool. <laughs> you know, that was fine. But it was a weird thing because as I moved around the country, because of my age, I would go to student unions. And student unions were great places. There were lots of people my age there. And these were smart and interesting people. And there was music. And I could discover the things I was missing during the day when I was hitching or or trying to find some way to get some money and stuff and I'd meet these great people uh, and I'd hang around and there'd be a band and then you'd hang around a bit more and there'd be a club and you know and if you'd met people and chatted to them and perhaps entertained them they might be like well come crash at ours and have toast in the morning and so you'd have to I, I'm quite an introvert and I had to learn how to just talk to people and create these friendships and bonds uh, and as I was doing that you, you kind of you meet thousands and thousands of people and, and you kind of see these groups, these natural patterns within groups that emerge and you see people who share interests form cert certain groups around music or sport and, and so you go to Nottingham and there's great rock scene there and it's the same for Bristol and you go to Glasgow and there's great art scene there and indie music and, and, and the music became something that really stood out and I, I saw these sort of great groups and, and you could, if you were in one place and you liked one thing they would say, well, go to this other place, this other, student, this other venue, and you'll meet these people and they'd be cool. And as a result, you could sense that there were these, yeah, these communities who sometimes were geographically in the same place and sometimes they were dispersed. But it enables you to integrate yourself in a way that you become part of this family, this larger body of people. And there was a trust there, the ability to turn up at someone's place and go, I like the same music as you. I met Laura in Glasgow can I crash? And someone will be like, yeah, sure. And it's totally based on shared interest. And that's a really powerful thing. Okay, you said it's totally based on shared interest. But I also want to believe that there's something innate in us as humans to, to want to be around other people and to want to help other people. I don't know if that's yeah. an ignorant thing to believe, but you know, this, this good in humanity of, of wanting to care for our, our, each other. So I believe in that as well. But people are legitimately and rightfully not necessarily trusting of everyone. But if there's some really good assumptions, things that they can do from the outset to put that trust there, and that can be this person, you know, in the cycling community, I see it all the time, this other person cycles, they can't be a bad person. Right. Okay. You know, and as soon as you get to that, as soon as you get to, they must be good because they like the same band as me. Yeah. And you mentioned mutual friends being yeah. such a big part, like, you know, to take it back to modern technology and in these communities we're building online, I, whenever I rent an Airbnb and I see that the person has a mutual friend with me on Facebook, that's like the immediately the home I'm going to rent. I don't have the best friends in the world and they probably don't either. So this could be a total sketch ball yeah. versus, you know, <laughs> this other really nice person. But, you know, you just, you, you trust inherently in that. And I think, I don't know, I, I wonder like if you've looked back at like the history of how communities have formed like since you know cavemen days and, and what is still in us today and how we're still just elementally like the same 
I haven't looked that far, but I have reflected more recently on the difference between social networks and communities. Why the social network doesn't erode the community? I mean, how did the community survive the last 10 years in the rise of Facebook, MySpace, and Twitter? Why is it the communities are still super strong and have some of the, the engagement metrics off of a community website? They're unbelievable. They're, people live on communities in the way that they live on nothing else except perhaps Facebook. And on that, I've reached a set of conclusions, some based on research, but I really, really want to see research done in this area. But it's, um, I think there's something between an introvert and an extrovert, and the extroverts like to organise the entire universe, the world around themselves, and they're broadcasting, and you know they organise all information about themselves, and the social network fits this so perfectly. Yeah. And these aren't exclusionary things. Then it's not a mutually exclusive thing. You can't. You can be both introverted and extroverted. Ambivert, right? Yeah, <laughs> I guess. But I think the introverts really, really like to hide within the crowd, to anonymize themselves to some degree. And they, they are energized far more by their, the thing that they care about, their interest, their passion being furthered than they are about them being you know, told they're a little snowflake. I know that sounds so patronizing, but there we go. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's not about them. It's, it's far more about their shared thing. And they really, really invest in that. And I, I think a lot of people seek that in a way that they seek nothing else. Like, you know, they get up in the morning and they're just like, I want to work on this. Musicians and artists are great examples of people who are very introverted and they seek solitude a lot of the time. But when it comes to the thing, their art, their, the thing they care about, they seek people to feed off of and to feed and to work with and to collaborate with. And yeah, that's super interesting. It is a very natural thing, but I, I think it's something that really, really works for introverts. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Introvert, apparently. And your, is your girlfriend an introvert or an extrovert? Extrovert. How does, how does <laughs> that balance work? Uh, quite well. It means I can be silent. i i find it can be really hard i date an introvert and i find like the fact that he doesn't seek to organize community in the same way confuses me it baffles me because it it comes so naturally you know i i just wonder i think we get along best when i'm more in my ambivert introvert stage and it's just something to think about i guess you need both i think you do need both you don't want one without the other and even within a community you will find there are a few more extroverted people who will be the the ones who are very outspoken and corral people together and lead and come up with ideas and then everyone else delivers it but yeah you do need both but i think you just have more of them in a community more introverts in the community and more extroverts on the social networks so how did you pull yourself out of homelessness and what were your first steps kind of to get an apartment really i guess that's the the big difference uh we probably shouldn't talk about my apartment (laughs) (laughs) um the, the coming out of the music it was the music industry, basically. Coming off the streets was the music industry. Uh, going to these, back to these student bars, I was hanging out with some of the bands before, you know, sound checks and stuff. And I, on one occasion in Manchester, I was sleeping in a car park and I almost got run over by a coach. And on the coach, it was uh, a band called Elastica. And this was uh, 92, I think, or I don't even know. It's a long time ago. And yes, yeah, so they almost run me over, but they were just like, hey, come into the venue, uh, hang out with us. Sorry for almost running you over. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. And eat some of the rider and let's go play Laser Quest. And it was great. I got to meet the band and hang out and they they were cool. And And you were how old at this age? 
I'm not sure. Maybe young twenties, eighteen, nineteen, yeah, or okay. something. And yeah, so I, I started hanging out with them, and I went to their gigs, and and they were off to Leeds the next day, and I was like, well, I'll hit to Leeds, and I could do this because I had no place I had to be, so get on the coach and go. Uh, well, I stand next to the road and go. So. <laughs> so yeah, I went to Leeds and I hung out with the band again, and over many years we got to the point where it's just like, well, one, I sell your t-shirts for you, so. I could do something and I could it would be of more value and by doing that I was meeting the fans and I liked the band and I met more fans and again building community yeah exactly so and from the fans I said well one I build a fan club you know sort of mailing list and stuff and this was back in pre-computer I'm using paper and pen and stuff and this evolved and where I ended up on this was that I'd built yet another community, uh, this fan club, and I taught myself how to program because at a certain point, paper and pen were not going to cut it. And Elastica bought me my first computer, which I had on this. I was in this squat in uh, Camden and I had this really nice IBM 386. And that was me sitting in the squat trying to learn how to program because I knew computers could do a mailing list. This was the kind of start of it. It was um, as soon as I had possessions, I needed to put them somewhere. And it was a squat, but it was it was somewhere and as soon as I had a computer I needed to work out how to use it so I, I taught myself how to program Visual Basic I think it was at the time to build this sort of uh, mailing list and as soon as I had that stuff in place then I was like well what more can I do with it and so then it was well why can't I sell the t-shirts for Elastica and as this evolved where it ended up was I ended up in the music industry uh, running various websites and sort of product mailing lists and all of the stock management for merchandising and so hanging out of all the bands. Marketing, e-commerce, community, all of that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, but this was like 96. Right. <laughs> you know. So e-commerce, commerce. <laughs> yeah, in 1996, I made, um, well, for the company I was working for at the time, we made £60,000 from selling T-shirts online, and that was 96. It's incredible. Um, and I'd written my own uh, shopping cart software using Pearl, which I managed to teach myself. And, and yeah, it was, that's kind of the exit the exit from the streets was the music industry that's so inspiring really because music is touches everyone I, I meet so many people where music has saved their life in some way saved mine <laughs> <laughs> totally did and do you still keep in touch with elastica no i went through quite a lot of the music industry so i ended up working for bell and sebastian as well and i was there when uh, uh, snow patrol was signed and I, I was close to blur and hanging out with graham coxon at the mixer and stuff so i went for the whole brit pop thing wow now you're hanging out with just dorky tech entrepreneurs <laughs> this, sounds, <laughs> this sounds so much cooler <laughs> well it was this wasn't it there was a scary bit in like 95 where it kind of went wrong and then it went wrong again in 98 and in 95 what went wrong was uh drugs there were drugs everywhere there were too much and people who were friends who i cared about just took a lot of drugs and you don't want to go down that path right and i saw a lot of good people turn i wouldn't say bad but they just <laughs> left their path they were no longer them and i pulled back a big way in 95 in 96 i um with discovering bell and sebastian i kind of went back into the music industry and but in 98 after we won the brit award and there was a lot of drama about whether we'd fixed it we had <laughs> wait what is this we fixed the Brit Award. I don't know what that means. You know the Brit Awards? It's like UK Grammys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, how did you fix it, though? It was the first one that was online voting. <gasps> this is crazy! <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a case where we looked at it and Bell and Sebastian had been nominated for Best Newcomer. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the band didn't fix it. I worked at the label at the time. And we looked at it and we basically went, how do they know we haven't voted twice? Yeah. And you can either go, right, they've taken your email address. And they were not doing that. 
uh, they were setting a cookie. Nope, they weren't doing that either. So the only thing they could do is an IP address. But it's 1998. Yeah. Every time you log on to the internet, you get a new one. Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> so, Have you been outed for this before? Yeah, I've said it enough times. I'm not sure the drama is never really caught round. But the Brit Awards is a weird thing because everyone does, everyone tries to fix it. And it was Stock Aik and Waterman, uh, Pete Waterman, who had steps. They were trying to fix it by doing a phone crew. It's a two-week voting window. And they hired a phone crew to phone up and, and set votes. Uh, and this is kind of well-known. Uh, like everyone would deny it, but it's kind of well-known marketing strategy. You fix the Brit Award. And he learned that he was winning um, by quite a margin. So he laid off his phone call crew to save him money halfway through the two-week period. Yeah. But it took us half a week to kind of wake up and go, maybe we can fix this. <laughs> <laughs> and then it took another half week for us to communicate that this is how you do it. And what we basically did was we sent an email to our mailing list, which was 25,000 people um, who were all Bell and Sebastian fans. Wow. And we just said, this is the URL you need. Set it as your homepage. So every time you come onto the internet in the next week, a vote comes in. And that was it. And you won. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> it just soared straight past Pete Waterman. We got a Brit Award. How are you going to use uh, ingenious marketing tactics like that to launch Microcosm into super fame? Um, I don't yet know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the best marketing, I think the best that comes out of startups comes from not having money. I think it's if you've got a lot of money, you do the predictable things you hire a marketing person and they say spend money on adwords yeah. and you spend money on adwords and that's it if you don't have money and you don't have that means you're forced to think what can i do yeah be and much more creative with yeah resources um, far more effective even if it's you know, if it's cost cost you nothing to do something and yet you can get some impact get a few customers on board i think that's a thousand times more valuable than spending a lot of money and getting uh, marginally a few more but having spent so much money in it and produced this inefficiency from the outset so yeah whatever it is it would be fun okay well we'll definitely look for the launch of microcosm in january it's probably a well-timed interview to go out right before then and you mentioned that a lot of the bike communities will be on first yeah. will it be open to everyone to sign up for in january it will be open for everyone we really just want to provide these spaces where people can nerd out about yeah. whatever it is they love. And that's not limited to cycling. It's just that I know a lot of people in the cycling world who want to use this first. But actually, we've got a lot of other people who seem to be like hacker spaces who are just like, you know, what? we just want something that works. Wikis don't work for us. The email mailing list doesn't work. Forums are kind of clunky. If you can just do something that works for all of this stuff, where people can just coexist and just nerd out, I want to sign the 34 or 60 miles community up. Awesome. And it's, uh, it's a community that I run, which is people that are in love with New York and London. Hey, cool. I'll sign up for that. But there's so many, there's so many, so much confusion over, you know, oh, do I need a visa to move to London? How do I transfer my bank account? You know, just technical things, but also what restaurants should I go to? What, you know, expat what communities are big deals. Right. One of the biggest communities in London is a Russian expat site. Ah, and is it built on microcosm? No. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> but I will be going over there again. Hey. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, again, this is Courtney Boyd Myers for the uh, Makeshift team and David Kitchen of Microcosm. So check it out in January when it launches. Indeed. Thanks.